Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, and I hope that everybody is having a great Independence Day celebrating the nation's 246th birthday. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Another bumpy market week into the holiday weekend as Russia continues to pummel Ukraine and steadily eat more territory as NATO holds its most consequential summit in decades. China has ordered Airbus jets leaving Boeing to demand Washington ease up on its tough line against Beijing's growing belligerence. That's worrying the administration as well as allies and partners uh, across the region and indeed around the world. As we head into the Farnborough International Air Show, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance remains a hot market. Joining us as they do every week to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch uh, in our New Jersey Bureau, Sash Tusa of the Independent Equity Research Firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy, who has decamped from D.C. for the summer, as one does, to Dubrovnik, where he and his family have taken up apartments. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us, especially on this holiday. Yeah, it's great to be here, Vago. Wouldn't be a holiday without it. Thank you very much, Vago. Always a pleasure. And Sash, I understand if you're somewhat I... more low-key low key about this holiday than we are, but we're very happy that you're joining us on Independence Day nonetheless. <laughs> uh, look, you know, if, if that's how you want to do it, it's, it, it's your decision. Um, you can always have seller's remorse. <laughs> yes, yes, at some point, and, uh, we'll I see. Believe, I believe uh, to give you the, uh, the words you're looking for in the words of King George, from Hamilton, you can send us a fully armed battalion of your love. <laughs> well done. Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And we are a Farnborough International Airshow media partner, and our coverage of Britain's leading airshow is sponsored by Farnborough International and Leonardo DRS. And check out our two weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters and the downlink with our contributing editor laura winter who takes a thoughtful look at all things space uh everybody as i said thanks so very much for joining us especially on this holiday ron uh start us off uh right short week uh that always drives uh, interesting behavior uh, but anything new in terms of how the group performed or what you know, investor expectations are, right? Whether it's about continuing supply chain challenges, right? Anybody who's trying to buy a car uh, sees that gas prices are, are high, uh, which are becoming to be reflected in people's uh, personal habits. Walk us through the drivers and where the market's head was this week and what you thought was interesting, especially how the group performed. When you walk through the group this week, uh, defense largely outperformed uh, in the U.S. Um, uh, Northrop was up a little over 4%, Lockheed about 3.5%. Uh, Raytheon Technologies, two and a half percent. Boeing was largely uh, flat on the week, uh, just up about half a percent. Uh, the, and the S&P was down two percent. So the group outperformed the S&P, uh, but defense largely outperformed commercial. Uh, when you look at uh, what happened with the 10-year, the 10-year uh, pulled back a little bit, you know, just about 2.9 percent. And I think what's investors' minds today is a lot of talk about recession, 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 recession. And, and that, that seems to be what's sort of holding back the, the tenure now is, you know, are we in a recession? You know, is recession going to happen? Is recession in the second half? 
and not just recession in the U.S., but recession um, potentially globally. Um, and that's that's I think been one of the the, the key themes in the market. Uh, WTI crude was about 110. Now, one one thing that's a little different, uh, I thought was interesting to take a look at. There's an, an index on, on the Bloomberg called the DSPAC index. It looks at uh, all the companies that DSPAC'd, and the DSPAC right. index uh, for the year is down. Uh, actually, from this time last year, so one full year, is down almost 80 percent, and this past week was down uh, almost 15 percent. So there's still de-risking going on in the market, and I think this this rotation into defense that we're still continuing to see isn't just based on defense fundamentals, but the fact that um, in, in, in history, defense has largely been defensive. Um, that's not to say that, you know, if in a you know, market sell off that it won't sell off, but generally sells off less. And, you know, defense this year, at least in our coverage, has really done you know, much better than uh, pretty much everything else. Uh, in, uh, indeed, but, it, but it, it's fascinating uh, that the, you begin to think that some of the supply chain stuff is a little bit BS. Uh, until you go into stores and see stuff just not being on the shelves, right? I mean, entire areas of stores uh, having a somewhat grim uh, and oddball selection of stuff. Uh, so, you know, clearly it is having an, uh, an, an impact. Um, Sash, uh, European and Asian uh, investors, right? I mean, what, what are some of the drivers? We just also had a highly consequential NATO uh, summit. Um you know, what, what are, what are some of the drivers? What was the interesting elements of this week? Because over there, it was not a short week, right? It was just a normal week. Yeah, that's right. And it was a very, very odd week. Um, there would have been more concern in the European markets about recession, or certainly in, in the European civil aerospace stocks, if Airbus had not ended the week um, announcing its order for uh, just under 300 uh, A320neo, family aircraft from China, which um, you know, gave the week a pretty good ending, particularly for Airbus, which was uh, at one stage up nearly 5%. Um, and we, we should come back to that later. But so that sort of, that took a bit of the edge off it. Although I have to say coming out of the holiday weekend or your holiday weekend, um, uh, most of the civil aerospace stocks were trading off again. And that very much reflects the you know, concerns about a recession. The, the NATO summit was very, very hard to read. I think it was politically quite important, but trying to analyze what the, the genuine drop through from this astonishing statement about how NATO is going to have 300,000 troops on. And, you know, the words are tend to vary a bit, but they talk about high alert or high readiness or, uh, you know, standby or whatever. Uh, and that's up, you know, effectively eight times the 40,000 troops that are supposed to be in high readiness today. Try, I mean, first of all, is that believable? I don't think it is. Secondly, if it is, what are the implications for the individual countries and their budget? And then what's the drop through to the, the companies? And overall, the defense companies, uh, you know, investors looked at the NATO summit through the prism of European defense companies and US to, to a degree and ended up just saying, yeah, too difficult. You know, we can't, uh, you know, it's probably right to be positive on defense, but, but, the 300,000 figure is bizarre. Uh, I mean, you cannot have 300,000 uh, service personnel on high readiness. High readiness, just you know, for those of our listeners who perhaps aren't aware, high readiness is normally taken to be one to two weeks notice to move or less. If you are on um, an, a day's notice to move, you are sleeping with your boots on and with your 
weapon, you know, pretty much, you know, loaded and ready to go. If you're on two to three days notice to move, you still can't be out of barracks. If you're on a week's notice to move, uh, you have to leave all of your details uh, and be recallable at 48 hours notice. And, you know, all of your vehicles are, you know, fueled up and bombed up and everything else. And that sort of level of, of readiness is unbelievably expensive, one. Two, to have, you know, a thousand troops on that, let's say one week's readiness to move, you've got to have another 2000 because you have to rotate them through because after they've been on high readiness for one or two months, their training cycle has gone to hell. They, they have started losing skills, losing proficiency, and you have to put fresh troops in. So 300,000 troops on high readiness to move, if we say it's even two weeks takes to move, that's a million troops on high readiness, just doesn't happen. Um, and so I think the market was right to sort of shrug that one off. It's, you know, it, it's probably politically of interest, but it do, didn't drop through in terms of how can I show this to have demand for more armored vehicles? How can I show this to have more demand for ammunition? Because it, uh, it's an impossible number. Very quickly, because um, I, I want to um, go back to uh, Sash uh, in just a moment. Uh, but Ron, uh, any investors asking you uh, about the NATO summit and what the drivers were? There, there wasn't really a lot of discussion about that this week, right? I think a lot of it had to do with going into the, the long holiday weekend. Um, you know, I mean, defense did outperform this week. So, I mean, there was a view that, like I mentioned before, that defense is a place you, you potentially want to be given the macro backdrop. But we did not get a lot of incoming questions on uh, on the NATO summit. Uh, I do think on this side of the Atlantic, investors are, are, are keen to... Um, Really, really be confident in the fact that NATO will spend more on defense spending and with the various things that are happening uh, in many of the NATO and next to NATO countries. Uh, I think there's growing confidence that that that, you know, that aspirational two percent is now really becoming maybe a two percent floor. Um, Richard, uh, your your sense and what what you thought was interesting sort of takeaways from the NATO summit? Well, you know, I mean, I agree completely with Sash, you know, it's highly aspirational. You know, you look back to when you and I were in college and the expectations for force deployment back then. Yes, you had numbers like that and you knew that some of it was hollow, but a lot of it was real. And now, you know, it's going to be a long time before the necessary, you know, logistical support and equipment and train troops are in place to generate these kinds of numbers. You know, it, it's, it, it, it's their hearts in the right place. I think the most interesting reportage has been about the relatively bullet, uh, brittle political climate behind most of the leaders involved, whether Biden or Macron. And, and that's, of course, in everyone's mind as they meet. Yes, the leaders involved are quite sincere yeah, support back home we just don't know and that's of course the biggest variable here you know but there were two um aircraft related uh developments in the week right it, it appears uh, that the united states is going to clear f-16s uh for turkey uh in exchange for ankara lifting uh its opposition at least for the time being uh to uh finland and sweden joining nato obviously uh the turks putting the kibosh or trying to put the kibosh on it until uh both stockholm and helsinki agreed uh, to be tougher on terrorists. Uh, this story is not over, but I think uh, Erdogan realizes that he can get something for, for this. So we've got the F-16, uh, potential F-16 transaction moving forward. Uh, and then uh, we had Sweden ordering up to four Globali uh, 
uh, aircraft. Sash, sort of give us a, a sense on on what these deals mean, uh, and then Richard and Ron want to get your your guys bite of this apple because right, the intelligence surveillance reconnaissance market is very very hot right now. This is um, a tremendous aircraft. Obviously, uh, this also ties into NATO AWACS uh, at a, at a time when Boeing is trying to push uh, the wedge tail, and indeed the wedge tail may get a tailwind uh, from a U.S. Air Force order. You know, walk walk us through what this aircraft dynamic is and whether it extends to other weapon systems and platforms. Okay, yeah, I mean, look, to start with, I didn't quite share your skepticism about the the, the tying in of F-16 to Swedish and uh, Finnish entry into NATO. So the Sweden and Finland, in all probability, will enter NATO with, sometime within the next couple of years, formally. I mean, you know, they've been, the candidature has been accepted uh, at the summit this week. And you know, it's, it's possible it, it, it could take as little as a year. It'll probably take a bit longer. But unless the US were to deliver, to deliver 60 F-16s to Turkey inside that time, so the Turks would say, hey, we've got our 60 F-16s now, we're going to nix the, uh, the, the Swedes and the Finns. Um, the F-16 is going to be a very, very powerful um, uh, you know, carrot to dangle uh, over, over Turkey, um, really to, you know, to make sure that the Swedish and Finnish um, accession occurs. That, that's my take on it anyway. Now, the, the Swedish global order is, I think, really, really important. Um, but again, you know, for listeners who might not be aware, global is the um, huge update of the original Swedish REI uh, Airborne Early Warning System. And, and REI always looked a bit odd. It was like a, a, a couple of very large planks strapped onto the back of a rather small turboprop. Um, no, no AWACS aircraft looked elegant. Most of them look improbable. Uh, Airei was proudly in the middle of that particular uh, aesthetic set. Um, but the radar is a very, very good one. And the Global Eye radar is about 35% more powerful. But the kicker is that instead of putting it on a small turboprop, they put it on a very large business jet, the Bombardier Global 6000. And that gives the, um, the system about another 20,000 uh, feet of altitude. And 20,000 feet of altitude is just more range. So the quoted figure for, um, or the original quoted figure for AI was 200 plus nautical miles of range. And the quoted figure for Global Eye is 400 plus uh, nautical miles of range. Um, and Part of that is power, part of that is, uh, and, and you know, the performance of the radar, and part of that is uh, altitude. And I think those numbers, both those numbers are conservative, the global eye, very conservative. Why is this important? It's a huge upgrade for Sweden. Sweden only had one operational area and one other. So they could put one aircraft on station at any one time and not for very long. Um, if they buy the full four, and I don't think you, you go in for a process like this where, where you order two with two options, unless you're pretty damn sure you're going to, going to need the extra two, um, Sweden will be able to put at least two aircraft in the air uh, at a time and probably maintain a very high level of coverage, uh, probably even 24-7 over a particular area. Um, and, you know, in the Baltic, that really matters. It's also important because uh, it keeps the global eye production line going comfortably into the second half of the, of the decade. At the moment, production is being done for the United uh, Arab Emirates, who uh, have ordered five and so far taken delivery of a, of a couple of those. Um, and as you rightly point out, it makes um, Globaline now a very, very interesting uh, contender for the NATO AWACS replacement whenever that occurs. And it's entirely possible the NATO AWACS replacement might fragment with some nations going it alone uh, with their own aircraft and some nations 
um, buying buying in a pool. The nice thing about uh, Globalize is it's about you know four hundred million dollars an aircraft, including the uh, ground suite. That makes it affordable for a lot of nations that couldn't afford uh, a couple of uh, AWACS. AWACS is brutally expensive and incredibly capable. Um, and my bet would be that, as well as seeing a replacement market for uh, all the AREIs in service, and there's about 20 AREIs in service with another six customers, and I think Saab will mop those up, um, we'll see customers or potential customers. Finland, I think, is very likely uh, to look at um, Globalize. Uh, one view has been that that's sort of the consolation prize for uh, Gripper not winning the fighter competition. Um, it's, it's, you know, it looks very, very likely for countries like Poland and possibly even uh, a pooling uh, for the Baltic states as well. So, I, you know, you said uh, ISR is uh, on a roll at the moment. Um, this is the first time that I can recall that we've had genuine competition in the higher end airborne early warning and control market. Historically, you had a choice of two US aircraft. You have AWACS, you know, absolutely the best uh, aircraft out there, but very expensive. Or you had the, the originally the Grumman E2, Northrop Grumman E, uh, E2, um, slightly more, uh, you know, uh, different capabilities, slightly more eccentric. Um, Globalized very much, at the t- uh, you know, towards towards the top end now. And I think that, you know, that's very, very interesting for a company like Saab, which is objectively, you know, a, mid, a mid-cap, mid-capitalization company. Richard, uh, your your sense on all of this, because you've been tracking all this stuff pretty closely for some time. And Ron, want to get your uh, take as well about, you know, how you're responding to this and whether or not it's, you know, a needle mover in the in the grand scheme of things. Go ahead, Richard, start us off. Yeah, in terms of the combat market, you know, for situational awareness, targeting capability, and of course, uh, you know, connectivity between platforms and other sensors, you really need an AESA radar increasingly. And what's sort of interesting about combat aircraft developments over here in the Eastern Mediterranean is that everyone's come to that conclusion. And, you know, we talk about Erdogan and what's he, what he wants, um, they haven't ordered a new fighter plane in about a quarter of a century. Uh, you've got this very dilapidated fleet. And so much about the Turkish economy is this uh, rather ridiculous Potemkin village, which has resulted in near hyperinflation, God knows what else. But nowhere is that more true than in military aircraft, where the answer to everything is, well, my cousin can deliver an indigenous system that will take care of that. And of course, no one really believes in the TFX coming to the rescue. So it is noteworthy that when they get the F-16 Block 70 and rebuild part of their existing fleet, you know, it's going to be, it's not going to solve their aging fleet problem, but it does get them their first AESA radars. Even where I am, Croatia, even here, they have a roadmap to AESA radars with the Rafael Greece has has AESA soon with, Israel has AESA, of course, the Russians too. The idea of Turkey being any kind of significant power with a, you know, average 30, 30 to 40 year old fleet with no AESA radars, that was inconceivable. So I think this was the last place that Erdogan could could or could not use his leverage to allow Sweden and Finland in. And now at least he has some kind of answer that gets him past that problem. Uh I, uh, and, and do I want to ask you uh, before we go to Ron? Do I do you do I want to ask you about the pre-owned Rafal market? The pre-owned Rafal market. The you used Rafal market. Been very interesting. The used because you know you don't nobody says used wheel. anymore. They're pre-owned. Right, Dealer right. certified. Pre-owned. Well, you know to be fair, 
<laughs> to be to be fair, that often you know comes with a significant rebuild, the kind of thing that you know the, the Saab folk did for uh, the Czechs and Hungarians. But it's it's a brilliant sales technique. It allows for quicker availability, and of course, it allows the home air force to upgrade, and it allows a lower price point for the you know the, the customer. So. I, I think it's a brilliant sales tool. We should have that. We in the U.S. should have started doing this a long time ago. Uh, we've never had the right number of aircraft available. We've never had the FMS mechanisms that allow for this. You know, complete with the cash being used to recapitalize fleets back home. Um, so I, I think it's an extremely effective sales technique, and should be. And you'll see used more and more often. Uh, and uh, it'll it'll be great to get uh, the Dassault guys' take on on what that market situation looks like uh, at uh, Farnborough. Clearly, Ron, uh, you know, is any of this what, what's what's your take on all of this? And is any of this needle moving from sort of a macro Wall Street perspective? Uh, from a this side of the Atlantic perspective, it's really not all that needle moving. I mean, the the electronic surveillance um, market is, of course, an important market. Um, and you know the major U.S. contractors sell into that market, but uh, not you know you know Saab selling more of those air- aircraft isn't all that meaningful for 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 the U.S. contractors. Um, and probably what's what's more meaningful, I would say, and and not so much for um, the, the big contractors, but um, from a surveillance point of view, and totally not changing the subject, but I am a little bit uh, is um, earth earth imagery and synthetic aperture radar and that, that sort of stuff, stuff that's going on in, I call it, quote unquote, the new space market, um, you know, that, that has some interesting implications. Um, and maybe we'll talk about that a little later in the podcast. But um, yeah, outside of that, it's not that big of a needle mover. We've got a lot of ground to cover in the, in the time we've got. And I want to uh, quickly go uh, and have uh, Richard start us off because you've been quoted on this issue and we've been discussing it and you've been spearheading the conversation. Where are we on uh, air travel, right? Delays are continuing, uh, surging uh, demand still, um, right? I mean, it's interesting that when you're on NPR or BBC or any one of a number of sort of right mass market uh, programs, uh, there's a lot of talk about, hey, you know, there was a lot of, uh, you know, financial assistance given to the airlines, and now they're really bungling this up, crew shortages, uh, so closely run in terms of aircraft availability that all you need is bad weather and the whole you know, system falls apart. Walk us through whether or not uh, the airlines are doing any better now, right? Is the situation any better? Uh, the federal government's talked about getting involved and trying to help. Uh, not sure how much the government can do on that. But anyway, walk, walk us through where we are uh, in terms of getting to what would be a full and normal and just and good recovery. Oh boy, that's asking a lot. But you know, I can tell you one thing that even by my relatively optimistic expectations, it was a crush of numbers this July 4th holiday. You know, you look at TSA passenger screenings uh, compared to July 4th, 2019, uh, it didn't match it. It was about 15 or 20% above it. I mean, absolutely a crush of people. 
And uh, in the more robust numbers, like, uh, you know, uh, intra Europe or Australia and a couple of other Brazil doing really well, a couple of the key numbers are seeing exactly the same sort of, oh my God, crush of numbers. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, that, that just true. And yes, we kept everything in place to come right back on schedule that nah, the world doesn't work like that for good and bad reasons. And uh, sure enough, you had uh, cancellations or delays that I think were in the 28, 29% of all flights. Not good. Not good at all. Um, you know, normal was 15, 20, something like that. So this isn't such a happy experience, although it is very encouraging to see people travel. And Michael O'Leary over at, uh, at Ryanair, who's always useful for Equip, was uh, quoted as saying, you know, air travel isn't expensive enough, which I think kind of A, reflects the economic realities of paying higher prices both for crew and for fuel, but um, also a realization that, you know, we should probably be charging these people more because they really, really want to fly. And there's been all this skittishness about raising fares in the face of what I'm sure Ron would say is a very good chance of a recession. But in right. the here and now, people want to fly. They're willing to pay for it and uh, better cover those costs. In, uh, I, I'm going to go to Ron in, in just a second and then get Sasha's take on this also. But I remember uh, 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 Joe Campbell many, many years ago telling me, like, listen, you know, when when an airline's profit is 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 pretty much like salad in first class or whatever the figure was, you know, circa, you know, sort of mid 90s. That was one of the most eye opening statistics to me. I was just like, oh, holy cow. And, you know, when you do the analysis, right, Boeing did a study. I remember uh, our mutual friend Pierre Chow uh, and I one night didn't have anything better to do. And we calculated what the profit of the airline industry was. Uh, and Phil Condit told us, right, it was like one and a half percent that Boeing had studied it. And that was the same year that Keith Butler Wheelhouse sold Smith's uh, the commercial aviation business for specifically that reason. He's like, look, this is glamorous. It's wonderful. And we spend a week in Paris. And this this is just I make more money on medical devices. So just kind of just interesting and put that wherever you want to put it. Sash, anything you want to add to that? And, and Ron, Ron as well. Go ahead. We talked about this last week. Clearly, the recovery has been good so far. But the, the evidence that European air travel is creaking at the seams is actually doing it. It's a bit worse than that. It's really getting very loud. And, and our, you know, our view is it's going to be very interesting to see what happens to air travel as we go, go through August, effectively. Um, yeah, anecdotally, some people are beginning to say it's too, it's too much hassle to fly. Uh, and... Uh, you know, queues at airports, delays, uh, cancelled flights, your risk of not getting there in Europe, is, it's surprisingly high. And it's not, I mean, it feels dreadful in the UK, but actually talking to colleagues in France, Germany, and so forth, all airlines are, are having problems adding extra or adding back all the staff that they sacked uh, two years ago. Um, and I think the, you know, the proof of the pudding is probably going to be at the end of Q3, when we see where we are relative to 2019 again. And you know what what the what the base level of sustainable traffic is because clearly airlines put too much or tried to put too much capacity on for the summer season, uh, and then found themselves woefully short of uh, of personnel. And interestingly, it's you know it's the ground handling, the air traffic control, uh, the um, the the less visible sides of it that are also having enormous problems. You know, a couple of a couple of the European airports are now just rather arbitrarily cutting ten percent of all. Um, uh, of all slots because uh, they can't rely on ATC being available or baggage handlers being available. I, I, I think this is a, it's a very, very rocky recovery at the moment, but at an extremely high level. 
Uh, it's it, it's absurd, right? Because I think that there was an expectation that we were going to get there. And again, this is also what's contributing to the supply chain shortages, because I think ultimately people were like, really, is it really, am I really going to increase production? Uh, and it also gives you a, a little bit of pricing leverage. Okay, we got to go to the commercial, the rest, uh, because I want to get uh, Airbus, Boeing, uh, and China, but uh, Ron, give you give you a word on uh, traffic uh, before uh, Richard can lead us off on the China order. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. Just a, t- two quick things. Um, one, it's we're in this interesting dynamic where it's just let's, let's look at the private aviation market. I know it's a little bit different, but it's on fire and it's stronger than it's been maybe ever. <laughs> um, so it's I, it, you get a sense it might be hard to gauge what's going on in um, you know, the, the broader commercial travel market. But the one thing that does give me pause, and I might've mentioned this before, is what I call the Epstein Ski Index. Um, and if you look at the days skied last year for me and the days skied this upcoming year, um, all else being equal health-wise, I will ski less this upcoming year than last year because there was trips that were pushed from previous years into last year. So to get year on year, my ski comp is gonna be way down. Um, and so you just, I just kind of scratch my head when I look at some of these numbers, particularly around the 4th of July holiday and say, well, how much of that was travel that didn't happen before that's getting pushed now. And, uh, so there's a right. lot of cross currents here. So it's, I think it's something we have to keep an eye on. I, 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 I have, uh, heard some folks actually cancel travel saying it's not worth the hassle. I'll get back into this when I get back into it. And I have to tell you, a lot of people have become very comfortable working remotely, especially when they go, do I really need that meeting? Do I really need to go there? God, it's such a hassle. Uh, People have gotten used to having their commute be 25 feet, not 25 minutes. Uh, And I don't know the extent to which that's going to be lasting. I understand all the competitive arguments, right? I mean, right. we're we're all going to be doing the show uh, from Farnborough, uh, right? Uh, and, and apparently, by all, all accounts, we heard from Kevin Craven last week, uh, who's the ADS uh, president, right, that it, they are as subscribed as they could be for this air show after four years um, of, of not meeting in person. So it's going to be interesting. Um, R- Richard, um, start us off and, um, g- you know, give us give us a sense on the Airbus order, the magnitude of it. What does it mean for Boeing and you know, like whether right? Where is Boeing in making this argument, right? That somehow, you know, it's about jobs. I, I think every administration knows it's about jobs. Uh, but, you know, in this case, the administration is looking to try to avert a war with China by putting some red lines down and working that with its allies and partners. I mean, I want to point out to our audience, right? It, it's not like Airbus gets that much of a pass because France is looking increasingly skeptical at China, skeptically at China, uh, playing a lot a bigger role, wanting to play a lot bigger role in the Asia Pacific. The Germans are recognizing the Chinese are problematic. The Brits are recognizing the Chinese are problematic. The Italian, you know, like pretty much everybody is recognizing the Chinese are problematic. So if there's a bump for Airbus, you know, is that a temporary thing? Start us off with the sort of the central news. Does it change anything? Does the administration change anything? And then what does this mean uh, for Airbus? And let's just go around the horn on that one. Yeah, there's not much to discuss here. You know, 292 jets for Airbus uh, from China sounds like an awful lot. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, <laughs> 2018 was the peak 
peak China, as it were, in terms of importance to the export markets. It took about 360 jets that year. Uh, so 292 is at peak times most of a year, not a great deal. There was also some verbiage that accompanied the order that said basically, once the agreed terms and conditions are fulfilled, this will be added to the backlog. Okay, well, that means, you know, there's this sort of weird Chinese dual stroke order process where the airlines basically say what they want and what they need. And then the central government signs off on it and implied that hadn't happened yet, which means these orders might just be lumped in with the same hundreds of max orders that have not seen the PRC government sign off on either. So it perhaps looked more impressive to Airbus than it really was, but it also resulted in a you know, somewhat odd Boeing response where they basically said, hey, geopolitics matter. And uh, but so does trade. Trade is hugely important and jobs. So we better get back on the same page. Otherwise, we're going to be a, at a competitive disadvantage. Yeah, I'm not so sure it's the time to hit the panic button, uh, especially since exactly as you say, Vago, you know, the, eventually the French or whoever in Europe are going to follow follow the Chinese and the Chinese are going to make a point of coming out with some kind of announcement for Boeing. This is going to go back and forth. It always does. It always did. And again, the market isn't what it used to be. You know, Chinese air travel the Chinese air travel slowdown took place before the pandemic. It shows no signs of recovery. They have every desire to, you know, get out their Mao jackets and convert things back to the, you know, non-market economy they were before they thought being rich was a good idea. So I think there's a lot going on here that's just not quite what, is it, what it seems in terms of wow, this is impressive, and this is a victory for Europe. I, I don't think it's quite that, to be honest. You know, I, I Boeing has so many problems. I'm the first to talk about that. I'm not so sure this is one of them. In terms of sure things, the news this week that Delta looks like they'd reached a deal for 737 MAX 10s, that to me was just as positive, if not more positive news flow-wise, that if there is a MAX 10, that certification issue being still unresolved, but that's another matter in another corner. Uh, Ron, uh, does right? I mean, does the increase in Boeing defense revenue help the company at least offset? Right? I mean, it looks like we're going to uh, be in a period of higher defense spending. I mean, we'll see obviously what happens uh, in 2020 uh, with the mi uh, midterm elections, and obviously in 24. Uh, right? I mean, there are some Republicans who have been trying to put the brakes on increased spending, but I mean, does the DoD revenue kind of help offset this? Right? I mean, what's the picture from your standpoint? And is it alarm bell season, um, right? I mean, you could develop an airplane that makes you competitive in that market segment, for example. Um, that might be something uh, they could do, but that's off the table for another two years, uh, as we've discussed. Right, Ron, what's, what's your sense on what this means um, and whether the, the defense revenue helps offset this uh, in the eyes of uh, investors and in the eyes of just trying to get to, you know, to, to cope with strategic reality? Yeah, I mean, of course it does, right? I mean, it, that's the, the beauty of having um, a defense business. Uh, so uh, when you look at defense spending going up, I mean, they'll all benefit from it, including, including Boeing. Um, defense businesses tend to be very cash, um, cash generative. Um, so that it will, it'll help Boeing. Um, one could argue it could help Boeing more if they maybe manage that portfolio differently, but um, of course it helps them. Uh, and then the thing I think that's interesting about the China order um, and as Richard said, right, it goes back and forth. Um, there were some interesting um, headlines in the Chinese sponsored press that you know, we're not surprised that you know, the, uh, 
the Americans have a sour taste in their mouth about this or whatever, but, you know, it goes back and forth. It's a lot of airplanes when you think about, you know, 300 A320s. And then on the ground in China, uh, there's about another 100 uh, 737s. And then on the ground uh, in Boeing's inventory, there's about another 150 uh, 737s. So you're, you're, you're talking, I don't know, it's in probably some orders that are still floating around a backlog, close to 600 narrow bodies. Uh, that, that's a lot of airplanes, uh, particularly in a Chinese travel market, as Richard has pointed out adeptly over the last couple of years that slowed down, was slowed down, was slowing down before the pandemic. Um, so it's, you know, over what time frame can they take all that capacity and so on and so forth. So um, that that's, for me, a bigger head scratcher than uh, the actual order itself. Sash? I can't quite share uh, Richard's um, view of this as being relatively incon- inconsequential. Um, I agree that the Chinese market is not what it was and almost certainly will not be what it was in terms of volume because Chinese growth is slowing. Chinese growth is now, uh, you know, let's say 5% and it used to be 8% plus, plus, plus. And the drop through of that to air travel is going to mean they need fewer aircraft. But there's a couple of things that are happening in China that uh, suggest to me that they will still need, they will still need aircraft and that Airbus is going to supply a much bigger proportion of that uh, fleet in the future than um, it did in the past. And Boeing is going to su- supply much, much less. And that's not very healthy. Um, I think one of the reasons why the Chinese have actually um, you know, pulled the trigger on this, let's not call it an order then, but this, this commitment, is that they have become aware that C919 is not going to be in serious commercial service with Chinese airlines within this five-year plan and possibly not even next five-year plan. So they have got to fill capacity that was at least penciled in for the 919. Um, We're we're, we're all fairly skeptical about the 919 in different ways, but they clearly had something in there for it. It's not going to happen. They have to put something else in. And a short 300 AC20 Neos does that. I think that jobs matter, absolutely. Look at it from the Chinese point of view. You have two OEMs. One OEM uh, has in China a, a startup shop that applies a few decals, a lick of paint, and puts some seats in, and has not actually really done any of that yet. It's done a couple of aircraft. And you have another OEM that has a complete final assembly line that assembles uh, aircraft from sections upwards, does the complete uh, installation, um, completion, handover, and so forth. If those two aircraft were equal quality, equal performance, and the same price, the rational thing to do would be to buy the aircraft that supported more jobs in China. And Boeing's um, completion center in China is, is laughable in terms of the jobs that it provides, the technology it provides, provides, uh, or, or even just the face that it provides compared to Airbus's Tianjin line. Numbers, 292 aircraft. I was just doing a doing a back of the back of the envelope stuff now. That let's say that they're delivered over about five years. Again, this is uh, I humor me that, that I'm assuming this is a, a firm order that's going to go into the Airbus backlog soon and start production. Um, that works out at between six and eight aircraft a month over about four years which means it completely fills the Tianjin line through the, the middle of the decade. You know, on that basis, you support all that work, you support the 
the business of producing complete aircraft coming out of the Chinese now, that's good face. You know, uh, it basically supplants what you thought was going to be T919 stuff. I thought the Chinese made a, a very, very rational decision. If Boeing doesn't understand that it's got to be fair jobs on both sides of the trade, jobs in um, uh, Washington state and elsewhere in the US, but also jobs for your customer uh, and your customers, the Chinese state. If, if they can't understand that, they're just going to fall increasingly behind. And China, oh, sorry, Airbus has got China assembly lines in Europe, quite a lot of them, uh, in Canada, in North America, in China. If you, it, you know, if people can't understand, that's one of the reasons why it's gone from 20% market share to 60% market share over the last 25 years or so. Um, they sort of need to do the math. Anybody want to add anything uh, to that before we um, move on? I, I don't want to add to it. It's just, that's an excellent point. <laughs> that's all. Well said, Sash. I agree with you. That was uh, uh, remarkably thoughtful. Just to bring the show uh, home, uh, Virgin Orbit uh, launched uh, seven satellites for DoD um, last week, uh, showing that the company, you know, is is starting to pick up speed. I think as a lot of these. Uh, new novel commercial companies. We talked about uh, the first ever commercial uh, launch, a NASA commercial launch uh, from Australia. Uh, a lot of investment made uh, by Australia, indeed, in a number of countries. I mean, I should say the UK, right? Space is going to be very prominently uh, featured uh, at Farnborough as, as Britain uh, shows that it has a very innovative uh, space sector. Um, you know, Ron, talk to us about sort of the sector overall, right? I mean, we've had so many players uh, each year, right? Uh, you've got your uh, conference that we partner on uh, now for like 14 or 15 years or whatever it is. Um, and, you know, I mean, all of these companies were really small shops and they would come and they would talk. And a couple of years later, like Maxar becomes a big deal, um, right? And, uh, you know, what, what, what does this tell us about where this business uh, is going, going beyond, you know, what it means for Virgin Orbit, which is kind of pretty straightforward. Yeah, I mean, you're, we're really seeing, uh, I think, commercial space come of age. Um, and when I say commercial space, I mean, the, the, these companies that are, for now, largely serving government. So it's a government customer, but they're commercial companies. They're not you know, just the government doing this sort of thing. And we're seeing it across the industry, everything from earth imagery, um, like I mentioned earlier uh, on the podcast, uh, you know, uh, photo imagery, uh, synthetic aperture radar electronic signals uh, to the launch industry and um, other other things too. And at first it was in you know, a lot of credit to SpaceX for really you know, kind of ripping open this market. But now we're seeing many other players. Uh, just this last week, uh, Rocket Lab uh, launched uh, a CubeSat uh, that's doing the Capstone mission. And the Capstone mission is a mission for NASA. That's uh, part of the, the uh, return to the moon um, uh, mission uh, that was a successful launch. Uh, and so we're really seeing, you know, commercial space um, come of age. Um, you've got multiple players now that have successfully launched and are, are, are key to it across the, um, the universe of it. Um, you know, the next step is uh, truly, you know, what happens in um, the cis-lunar cis, cis uh, uh, game. Um, that's that's really kind of the next stage. But um, these commercial players are really, really becoming meaningful. Um, Planet Labs is another one that uh, not just Maxar, 
Um, if you look at Planet Labs, Black Sky and Max are, they're, they're all beneficiaries of this uh, next big funding in earth imagery from uh, uh, the US government. And uh, so it's, it's an exciting space to watch and there's, there's a lot going on. Um, Sash, uh, why don't you uh, bring it home, uh, right? I mean, I, I did mention uh, the UK, obviously Europe and, and France in particular has been a major investor uh, in space uh, across the board, obviously tied to uh, its um, missile programs, but the Italians have invested in space. And now we're, we're seeing increasingly Britain uh, doing the same thing, right? I mean, what are some takeaways from a European perspective on this? Um, yeah, I mean, look, um... And first of all, it's a sort of broader issue about why did the Virgin launch Maxa last week to the broader market? Um, I would highlight that what the market is missing at the moment is access to the Russian Soyuz uh, launchers because that's all embargoed. So there's been a shortage of capacity uh, or there's a perception of a shortage of capacity in terms of launch services. Now, Soyuz can launch very, very big birds. It can launch uh, GTA uh, satellites, you know, three and a half, uh, plus tons, um, but it can also launch, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, constellations and, you know, I mean, it, you know, you could certainly put CubeSats on if that's, if that's how you want to fill out the space. My, what I think is going to be very interesting is even if we get to a stage where um, all tanky dory and we're friends with the Russians again and Soyuz comes back into the launch market, it's going to find the launch market just been taken away because all of these uh, newer entrants have actually proved to be highly competent, uh, particularly in, with these smaller satellites. They are you know, starting to produce, in, in some cases, uh, very, very good levels of, of uh, reliability, and they understand about pricing. And I suspect that if Soyuz ever did come back, and let's say that's a big if, but if it ever did come back, it would find the market isn't there anymore because it's a big clunking old machine. Um, uh, which is great for a very large or a relatively large satellite, but actually is not what the uh, the broader commercial and paragovernmental market is looking for. Um, UK, yeah, UK is very, very interesting. I and mean, the UK has got, um, you know, launch capabilities top and bottom at the moment. So certainly geographically in the UK, down in the south, uh, UK airport in uh, Devon, Cornwall, uh, is going to be hosting um, Virgin. I'm trying to remember which one it is. I think it's Galactic. Um uh, with the effectively what was the Pegasus uh, launch, launch system, um, the air launched uh, uh, launcher, and then up in the north, uh, there's now a new launch complex up in uh, Sutherland. Um, and you know, the UK is very clear that that, that um, the UK government's very clear that it wants the space as a a major growth area. The proof of the pudding is going to be what the UK government does about the Galileo. Uh, uh, system and the UK's exclusion from that as a, as a consequence of Brexit and whether the UK goes for a standalone system with UK satellites, UK launch, UK control, or actually whether we just say now we'll, we'll, we'll fold and just uh, keep on using GPS. Guys, thanks very much for uh, joining us this week. Uh, hope everybody had a great holiday weekend. Hope everybody has a great holiday uh, today and hope you all have a great week and look forward to having you back on again next week and to the audience. Happy Independence Day. Thanks very much for joining us uh, today. And we go back to our regularly scheduled programming uh, starting uh, tomorrow and onward. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, it's always a pleasure, Vago. Thank you. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks and uh, greetings from uh, Independence Day in Croatia.
And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.